I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 12 as we get into God's Word together and continue our series in the Gospel of Mark and uh, looking at the life of Jesus and, and His words for us. Well, after spending uh, two years weathering a, a pandemic, uh, Waukesha, Wisconsin, as you know, was so excited to have their Christmas parade a week ago. And um, seeing the tragedy that that became was uh, almost too much to bear. Uh, And, you know, you look at that situation and you go, why, Lord? Um, And at the beginning of Thanksgiving week, when there's so much joy there, you know, there's some lessons that we shouldn't miss that come from that tragedy and really apply to anything that we're going through in our lives. And, and it directly applies to what we're talking about this morning. And the first lesson to learn is that evil and suffering were not part of God's original design for this world. And when you looked at that and you said, you know, it's not supposed to be this way, you're right, it's not. And suffering is real, but it is not permanent. Jesus' return will bring an end to evil. And for that, we can be so thankful. And then also, God did not leave us alone in our suffering. He he stepped into our suffering and he died innocently on a cross. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, the incarnation. God becoming man. And so what we're talking about this morning, and this is on your outline, is as broken as this world is, it won't be broken forever. Revelation 21, it says, God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. Every tear. I think it's in Psalm 57, maybe, that it says that God bottles up all of our tears. Not a tear falls from your face, from your eyes, that God doesn't know about. He loves you and suffers with you, suffers with us. And so when a tragedy like what happened in Waukesha happens, we say, you know, is this, is this life all there is? What happens to those who die? And Jesus addresses these questions in this passage. It's important for us to look at the context behind it as well. So at the top of your outline, you have this. Earlier in the day, the Pharisees and the Herodians had tried to catch Jesus in his words. In this account, we have the Sadducees attempting to do the same thing, entrap our Lord Jesus. The Sadducees did not believe in life after death because they believed only in the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And they, had no, they felt there was no direct teaching in there about that. And the writings of Moses were the only scriptures that they followed. But Jesus was about to point out that Moses' books support the idea of eternal life. So at the time of Jesus, the Jews were pretty unclear about heaven uh, and the afterlife. They usually referred to Sheol, which was the place where dead spirits would go, just like a grave is the place where dead bodies go. 
And it will be helpful to learn a few things about the Sadducees because they were different from the Pharisees. They were different from other religious leaders. The Pharisees had developed a pretty complete uh, doctrine, if you will, of rewards and punishments. But the Sadducees believed that the soul perished with the body. The Sadducees were very well educated, generally a wealthier group of people. Uh, They were known as experts in the interpretation of the Torah, of those first five books of the Bible. Josephus, who was an early Jewish historian, uh, described the Sadducees as arrogant and aloof and very judgmental. Uh, I was not particularly a fan of The Simpsons growing up, but I, I heard somebody come and ask Bart Simpson where he was going with his family for the weekend. And he said, we're going on a church retreat. We're going to learn to be judgmental. Well, that was The Simpsons maybe, and that was the Sadducees. That's not us that that describes. But the Sadducees thought that they could for sure put an end to Jesus' popularity. So while in one sense the Sadducees were liberal uh, in their denial of the resurrection, their denial of angels, their denial of heaven, on the other hand, they were conservative because they rejected oral traditions. They acknowledged only scripture as being authoritative, but they were also, and, and they were also very narrow and strict in the way they interpreted the Mosaic law, uh, more literally than others, others did. So the chief priests and the scribes and the elders had all had their shot at Jesus. Uh, Now the Sadducees come with a trick question that they'd probably asked the the Pharisees uh, the same question. So only for the sake of argument, just for the sake of argument, uh, the question that the Sadducees came up with assumed that the afterlife existed. Uh, because they didn't believe in an afterlife. And what they did is basically invent a situation that is so absurd uh, uh, that, uh, uh, for Jesus to, to say that it was absurd for them to think of heaven as well. And it demonstrated the absurdity of what Jesus had taught about the resurrection. So let's read, first of all, the question starting at chapter 12, verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no children. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her. So they come up with this most exaggerated question that they can come up with. And they miss the real question. And that is, what in the world was this woman putting in their falafels? I think we need to call CSI. She was trying to poison all of them for all of them to die with one. I don't know. Uh, But in their minds, the absurdity of this question proved the absurdity of the resurrection in the minds of the Sadducees. 
They were thinking, just look at all the problems that a future resurrection could potentially cause. And you mean to tell me there's a resurrection? Well, interestingly, the Pharisees had already weighed in on this question. And they said that if in this kind of a situation, she would be married to her first husband in heaven. Well, instead of siding with the Pharisees, Jesus answers their question with a question. Every time Jesus does that, I think, man, that is so awesome. What a great way to to combat these people that were against him. And it's almost like I think, Lord, give me a question to ask when people ask me a hard question, that I can respond to them in the same way Jesus did. And so we want to break down what Jesus says here. Um, And the first thing is that the scriptures, number one on your outline, the scriptures and God's power keep us from error. So because Jesus had already spoken of his resurrection three times in Mark, uh, the Sadducees, remember, who don't believe in the resurrection, think they have Jesus cornered for sure. So let's look at how Jesus responds. Verse 24, Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? So the first thing Jesus accuses them of is that they really didn't know God's word. Uh, Even though they, they acted like they knew the Bible, they didn't accept all of it. And they didn't even understand what they accepted, the parts that they did accept. And Jesus tells them plainly in verse 24, you're deceived, you're in error. Now, take this in for a moment. Jesus is accusing the theological elite of the day, the Sadducees, of of error in the area where they are experts. And because the Sadducees misunderstand the Bible, they misunderstand God. And our view, we, we need to understand that our view of God is shaped by the way we know the word of God. That's how we know who God is, is through his word. And the Sadducees had had God's revelation available to them, but they weren't responding in the faith that God requires for us that pleases God, that leads to life transformation. And so this is on your outline as well. If we misinterpret God's word, if we misinterpret God's word, it inevitably leads to a distorted view of God. It leads to God being too small and impotent to be the God of the Bible. J.I. Packer was the theological editor for the uh, English Standard Version, the ESV Study Bible. And he says, if you're just new to the Bible, or if you've been around the Bible for a long time and, and have been away from it for a while and want to reread it, then start with the four Gospels. Read the four Gospels from beginning to end. And then after that, read the epistles. Save Revelation for later. But read the epistles. Read all the letters of the New Testament. And then once you've done that, he says, go back and read again the four Gospels. Because that will make those come alive. Because the Gospel writers knew all of the theology that's in the epistles, in the letters. So go back and reread as a review to the letters the Gospels again. 
Then, after you've done that, then read the important books, the most important books of the Old Testament. And he mentions in particular Genesis, the book of beginnings, or Exodus, uh, the book of covenant, or uh, Isaiah that has so many prophecies in it about Jesus. And then uh, he says, once you've done that, then go back and, and read and reread and reread again the Psalms. Because he said, those will give you and should give you the rhythms of life you need to make prayer and praise a part of your experience every day. Um, I think that's great, a, a great way to do it. And you know, we have so many tools available to us here. Uh, like the one-year Bible. You know, there's a book you can get, the one-year Bible, that you read a portion of the Old Testament, the New Testament, a psalm and a proverb every day. Uh, or you can listen to the Bible. There's a number of different Bibles are, are recorded, so you can listen to them if you ever listen to, to books. You can listen to the Bible. Um, but then I, I, we, we know that the, the Bible is important for us to know God's word. And then the second thing Jesus rebuked the Sadducees for is for them not knowing God's power. For them not knowing God's power. What they believed, God, they, they believed God created the world, but they didn't believe he had the power to raise the dead. That doesn't make any sense if you really know the scriptures. They were limiting God in their own minds. In, in short, they were putting God in a box. That's what they were doing. And J.I. Packer says this about the power of God, and you have the quote on your outline. The Christian life is absolutely different from all the rest of the world's religions. The people who are trying to assimilate Christianity into other faiths are on the wrong track entirely. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Through the power of his resurrection, he leads us and guides us and this takes faith in him and the fullness of life that that faith in him brings. So think about it. Couldn't we say really that just about every error in life can be attributed to one of these two statements? This is on your outline. Either we don't know the Bible and aren't living it out in our lives or we don't, know, don't believe in the power of God to do what he says he can do. The, the first major error we make is not receiving Christ personally, not asking him to be the Lord of our lives, to be our, 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 our boss, our CEO, to, to do what he says. It, I don't know if, if, if this is, I, well, this is our motivation as, as a church for sending missionaries. Uh, we want them, we want people to know that, that Jesus is the only way for them to get to heaven. And that's why we, we think it's important to translate the Bible at the same time that they're going. Because there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved than the name of Jesus. And that's why our, our missionaries make it a priority to, to, to do Bible translation at the same time they're doing church planting. Because they can hear the word and, but they also, people need to be able to read the word of God and study the word of God and memorize it and meditate on it on their own. And the next thing that Jesus does in verse 25 is to confront the theological error of the Sadducees quickly. And he makes it clear that the world, of the, that, that the world of the resurrection is different from the world that we live in. It's a different world. And so, Heaven will be a completely new reality. 
Number three, or number two on your outline, heaven is a perfect place. Look at verse 25. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. So in this one verse, Jesus gives us a couple of very important truths. First of all, I think we know that Christian marriage is about the husband loving the wife. How? As Christ loved the church. And so marriage, Christian marriage, is to be a picture to the world of how Christ loves the church. Uh, And so in that context, marriage, and this is on your outline, is designed by God for companionship and intimacy and to produce children. And none of this is necessary in heaven. I read about a Christian who was being executed for his faith in the Tower of London. And he wrote a letter to his wife, and he said this in his letter, I am your husband while here on earth, but your brother in Christ for all eternity. And that's the way our relationships are as Christians with our spouses. We, we are here together in, in, in husband and wife on earth, but we're brothers and sisters in Christ forever. And that's the eternal perspective that we need to live with. That's living in light of eternity. And then the second thing that Jesus points out is that life will be different in heaven. We don't become angels as much as you might hear that people when they die become angels. We do not become angels. But we will be like them in the sense that we will obey and worship perfectly and we will never die. Warren Wiersbe says of this verse that resurrection, and this is on your outline, is not the restoration of life as we know it. It is the entrance into a new life that is different. So it's a new dimension, a completely different dimension that we will be in in heaven. Every relationship we have here will pale in comparison to relationships that we have in heaven. The relationship, first of all, with Jesus. Jonathan Edwards was maybe one of the most brilliant, thoughtful theologians that this world has ever known. And he sums up what heaven will be like, like this. It's on your outline. In heaven, the glorified spiritual bodies of the saints shall be filled with pleasures of the most exquisite kind that such refined bodies are capable of. The sweetness and pleasure that shall be in the mind shall put the spirits of the body into such emotion as shall cause a sweet sensation throughout the body, infinitely excelling any sensual pleasure here. In other words, uh, we could say that, that we will not be disappointed when we get to heaven. When we get to heaven, it, there will be maximum joy There will be optimal happiness. There will be complete satisfaction. Our relationship with Jesus and with our brothers and sisters in the faith will be so intense and will be so filled with love and affection that earthly marital bliss fades away completely. Heaven is indeed a perfect place for God's children who have come to him by faith in Jesus. And then the third thing we see here that Jesus is teaching us about, number three on your outline, is the divine power that God has to do what God promises. 
Jesus gives them another question in verse 26, and he quotes a passage of scripture that they know and they believe in in from Exodus chapter three. So he says this, verse 26. Now, about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in other words, the books you believe in, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. And Jesus defeats the Sadducees on their own turf using the books of Moses. And this is really a rhetorical question because he knows without a doubt that they knew the story he is referring to. And I think it's insightful that Jesus reaches them with something they're familiar with. It's like Paul quoting the Greek poets when he's in in preaching in Acts in Athens, in Acts 17. Uh, You know, soon after I became a Christian, I went to a training with Campus Crusade for Christ crew. And uh, among other things, they they gave us four spiritual laws for Jewish people that just quoted the Old Testament. I'd never seen that before. I don't know if I've ever seen it since. But um, it was interesting for me because I grew up in an area of Wichita, Kansas, where I'm from, that uh, had a lot of Jewish people. A lot of my best friends in high school were were Jewish. Um, And one of them actually had come over to my house in an afternoon to, to study for a test, and it was snowing that day, and the snow kept coming and kept coming, and my friend was snowed into our house for three days. And what do you do with a friend uh, when I had just become a Christian just before that for three days who's Jewish? Uh, I shared with him the Jewish four spiritual laws every day for three days. And we talked about, not really, but we talked about it a lot. I did share it with him and we talked about it. And he didn't come to faith, but we had some great discussions about it based on the scriptures he was most familiar with. A lot of them from Isaiah and other passages in, uh, in the Old Testament. So Jesus has them thinking about the burning bush. And from Exodus chapters three and four. And God says there, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And when God spoke in the burning bush, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had been dead for many years. But God spoke about them in the present tense in Exodus because they're alive, spiritually. And although it's unsaid here, I know that Jesus knows that that the Sadducees know that each of their wives, Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel, were all barren. And that God did a miracle to bring life for them. We were worried a little bit about Sarah because she was 90 when she became pregnant uh, with a promised child. And so... Uh, instead of, of pushing, a, instead of walking around with a walker, uh, again, 90, she's pushing a baby carriage to uh, balance herself. Uh, that would be a little scary, wouldn't it, if you were 90 years old and found out you were expecting a baby. That's Sarah. Uh, but even though these men and their wives had died physically, they were alive spiritually. And Jesus, and, and, and Jesus doesn't say, and God doesn't say in Exodus, I was your God. No, he says, I am your God. I am the God. What Jesus is saying 
when he spoke to Moses in the burning bush, he is referring to himself as a living God. And he is the God who will fulfill all of his covenant promises. Tim Keller explains it like this, and you have the quote on your outline in front of you. Notice that Jesus does not hang the hope of life after death like the Greeks did on the idea of an immortal part of us. Rather, he rests in the commitment of God to us. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a very powerful argument for life after death. We have a God who cannot, at our death, scrap that which is precious to him. In other words, he's the God of the living. You know, we've said this before, said it, I think, last week, that we think this is the land of the living. And when we die, we go to the land of the dead. But the Bible teaches the opposite. This is the land of the dying. And when we die, we go to the land of the living. We live forever. Heaven or hell, we will live forever. And so there are a couple of very important questions that come to us in this passage. The first one is this. Do you know the word of God? Jesus still asks that question today to you. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you do not know the scriptures. So how well do you know the Bible? What kind of time are you investing in reading and studying the Bible, memorizing God's word, hiding God's word in your heart? The Sadducees focused on social status way more than they focused on the scriptures. And they picked and chose what they wanted from God's word. It's not about head knowledge. That's not what we're talking about. The Sadducees had probably memorized a lot of verses, but they didn't have the faith that pleased God that was cultivating faith in their hearts. How do we get faith? It's through the word of God. Romans 10, 17 says, now faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Martin Luther in uh, the, the German Bible translated that, Romans 10, 17, like this. Now faith comes by hearing and hearing by a message preached about Jesus. That's how our faith grows. And the, the, they, uh, we can study, we can memorize the Bible and get a lot in our head. But the question is, is it in our hearts? Is it, is it transforming your character into the likeness of Jesus? That's God's goal. That's what he wants to do. He, he says we're predestined in Romans 8, 29 to be like his son. So if you're here this morning and I, I'm, I'm listening to this, whatever, I'm guessing that you have a desire to please God in the way you live your life. But here's the truth, and this is on your outline. You will never be able to please and honor Jesus if you're not reading and applying God's word to your life. If you're not seeking to live it out. We have to be living out God's word. That's what James says. He gives us this warning. He says, be doers of the word and not just hearing the word because that's just deceiving yourself. Researcher George Gallup said something that was kind of scary to me when I read it. He said that Americans revere the Bible, but by and large, they don't read it. And because they don't read it, we have become a nation of biblical illiterates. 
Um, Mortimer Adler, who uh, was the associate editor of the Encyclopedia Britannica and the, uh, the associate editor as well of the Great Books of the Western World, uh, a volume of 60-some books that are compendium to the Encyclopedia Britannica, did not include a Bible and was criticized by some people for that in the great books of the Western world because people argued that the Bible was, has maybe impacted Western society more than any other book. And he said, I didn't include a Bible. And this is before he became a Christian. I didn't include a Bible because every American has a Bible on their shelf. They just need to pull it off and read it because we have Bibles but we don't want to, I don't want that to be said of us, that we're biblical illiterates. Uh, Mortimer Adler came to faith in Christ when he was 70 years old and was baptized into the faith as a 70-year-old. Um, and uh, uh, interestingly enough, a Jewish background himself. And like I said earlier, this is why we at Claremont Emanuel put such a priority for our missionaries on Bible translation to happen at the same time as church planting. Now, if you want accountability, men especially, well, women too, uh, join a Bible study. Uh, we have a men's Bible study that meets at 6.30 on Tuesday mornings. It's a little bit early, but sleep is way overrated. Just come and join us on Tuesday mornings at 6.30. And we're starting a study in First Thessalonians this Tuesday. So we'd love to have you come and join us. Women have studies too, multiple studies for men and women that we have. Another question is this. Do people see God at work in your life? Verse 25. Is not this the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So do you know the power of God in your life? And you think, okay, well, how do I know the power of God in my life? You know, we can't order God's power like we go to a sandwich shop and order a sandwich. Uh, I'd like some more power, God. His power is ultimately a reflection of his will. And how do we know the will of God? We know the will of God from the word of God. In fact, I can think of like five times in the New Testament where it says this is the will of God. Second uh, Peter 3, 9. It is not God's will that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So first of all, we need to come to repentance. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, don't be ignorant about what the will of God is. And then a couple verses later, he says, this is the will of God that you are filled with the Holy Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, this is the will of God. Those are the words there in verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians, even your sanctification. And then he goes on the rest of the chapter to define what that means. So we know the will of God by the word of God. And that's how we experience God's power in our lives. It transforms our lives. That's when Christ's character is seen through us. And so is what you're learning in the Bible changing your life to make you look like Jesus. Paul gives us this warning in 2 Timothy 3. He says, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Again, that could have been said of the Sadducees, but I sure don't want it to be said of us. And the Bible has a lot to say about God's power. Like in Philippians 3, when Paul says I, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. 
And the word know that Paul uses isn't about intellectual knowledge. It's about life change. And the, the, the idea of know in the Greek is to become more deeply and intimately acquainted with Jesus in perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of his person. That's what know means when Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. How can this happen? You know what? We have the same Holy Spirit in us as Christians that rose Jesus from the dead, that resurrected Jesus from the dead. You have that power in you as a believer in Jesus. Outside of the Trinity, you are the most powerful thing in the universe because the Holy Spirit lives in you. And so with heaven in view, and this is on your outline, let's live like we're dying because we are. But let's also live like we're going to live forever because we will. Either in heaven or hell, we will live forever. We would expect a great God to have a great heaven waiting for us. And the Bible doesn't tell us everything we want to know about heaven, uh, but it tells us more than enough to know that we can long to be there. Like Paul said, I long to be in heaven, but I also wanna be with you too, because I know it's necessary. And the, the, the point of all of this is that uh, is we will be recognizable in heaven. We will know each other in heaven. If you say, will you know me in heaven? I'll say, yes, like I know you here and you know me. We will recognize each other in heaven. Uh, when, uh, what will heaven be like? You know, if there's one book that I could recommend on heaven, it would be Heaven by Randy Alcorn. It's the best book, the most exhaustive. Uh, it, it, maybe you're exhausted when you read it because it's so long, but it's an exhaustive look at what the Bible says about heaven. And Randy Alcorn says this, for the Christian, death is not the end of adventure, but a doorway from a world where dreams and adventures shrink to a world where dreams and adventures forever expand. That's heaven. And then Alcorn goes on to say, what we love about this life are the things that resonate with the life we were made for. The things we love are not merely the best this life has to offer. They are previews of the greater life to come. So here's some observations. You have them on your outline about heaven from the scriptures. Heaven is being prepared by Christ. Heaven is only for those who have been born again. We need to understand that. So what does it mean to be born again? Um, it means to receive Christ as our Savior and Lord. My, my brother Jimmy, uh, five years younger than I am, uh, followed me at the same public high school that I was at. Uh, he was president of the student body and he was captain of the football team. And the football team was ranked by USA Today to be the number one high school team in America. So people knew my brother uh, and he had, had become a Christian before that and he had a desire to share Christ with every one of the 2,000 students at our public school. So he went to the secretary and asked for all the birthdays of all the students and she gave them to him. She found out later she wasn't supposed to do that, but it was too late. Uh, and so what he did is he had the idea of 
making a birthday card that he would send to every student and he would um, tell them how they, if they enjoyed their birthday, they could have another birthday. They could be born again. And if they were interested in finding out how, they could come and talk with him at, at school or he put our phone number on there. Uh, by the way, we had a, 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 my brother had a Jewish man call up and say that he was very offended and was going to take him to court over what he was doing because that was Im, impeding on their right to privacy or whatever. And, and my brother said, well, uh, talk to my dad. He's a lawyer. So that was convenient. Um, but my brother at the beginning had about 10 friends that got together. He presented this idea to our church. Our church gave him $500 to pay for the printing of these uh, birthday cards along with the stamps. He had about 10 friends that got together and helped him address them all and stamp them. And, and he sent them off every day. He'd send off four or five or six or 10 or whatever. And, um, and people called and people came to Christ. And he started a Bible study. He said, we have to start a Bible study for those who are gonna come to faith. And so he did that. I was a student at Wheaton College and he asked me if I, when I came home uh, at, at one point to teach the Bible study. And there were about 70 students who had come to faith in Christ and who were a part of that Bible study that uh, he started. There was a little revival that broke out in the, in the uh, public high school. But heaven is only for those who've been born again, for those who've received Christ. Heaven will be like a glorious city. Man, you love San Diego? It doesn't compare to heaven. Heaven will be lighted by God's glory. Heaven has the water of life for everlasting life. We, 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 Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and might have it to the full. In heaven, it, it is a, a life, the tree of life is there for abundant life. At the center of heaven is the throne of God. I, I, man, I, can you imagine being in, in heaven and, and looking to the throne of God? And being around that throne with, with all of the, the 19 churches that our, that our church has planted through our missionaries and being able to worship together around the throne. What an amazing thing that will be. And, and heaven is a place of holiness. And it's beautiful. And heaven is a place of unity. And the Lord knows we need unity today. And there's only perfection in heaven. And heaven is full of joy. The, the, the joy will go on increasing forever. Think of looking through a photo album and you, you look at memories you've had 10 or 20 years ago and you remember the joy that that brought you to be on this family vacation or whatever it is. That's nothing like what will happen in heaven where the joys that we have will, will, will go on. Jonathan Edwards says this, do you think it will be any less in heaven? And this is a quote from Edwards. He says, their knowledge will increase to eternity. And if their knowledge, their holiness, for as they increase, they being the believers who are in heaven, increase in the knowledge of God, they will see more of his beauty. And the more they see of his beauty and excellency, the more they will love him. And the more they love God, the more delight and joy they will have in him. So there is eternal joy 
in heaven that awaits us. And heaven is eternal. And it will never be night there. And heaven will be filled with singing. I, I know I feel like, a, like I'm in heaven when, when Nathan leads us in singing or when we sing and the choir's leading us or the worship band. Heaven will be filled with singing. We will serve God. And, and I bet Nathan will be leading in heaven. And we will serve God perfectly. And what will our bodies be like? Our bodies will be recognizable. George MacDonald, who maybe had the most impact of any other author on C.S. Lewis, wrote this. He said, the new body must be like the old. Not only that, it must be the same body with all that was distinctive of each from his fellows more visible than ever before. The accidental, the non-essential, the unrevealing, the incomplete will have vanished. That which made the body what it was in the eyes of those who loved us will be tenfold in heaven. Will not this be the resurrection of the body? That's it, that's heaven for us. And we will be glorified like Jesus. And you know, I think we have the best idea of what glorified means with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you remember how he was described? The one transfigured before them, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. I think that's a glimpse of what our glorified bodies will be like in heaven. Not limited by space, eternal, glorious, and then I love this next one, free from pain. Man, I know a lot of you have gone through a lot of pain in this life. And (laughs) there will be no more need There will be no handicapped parking spots in heaven. No more need to go to the pharmacy. No more need to see a doctor. The the pharmacies will be gone. Hospitals, no hospitals. No cemeteries. Uh, Nothing like that. There's no need. He will wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, nor pain. All of that is gone forever. And we will be free from sin, free from temptation. For believers, the truth of the resurrection, of Jesus' resurrection, that points to our resurrection, is a a reality that should comfort us. And the sorrow and the suffering and the sin that makes this life so hard sometimes, we will one day receive a glorified body and will be in heaven for all eternity. And Paul writes this at the end of 1 Corinthians 13. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. So every time some religious leader came up to challenge Jesus, Jesus was masterful in the way that he responded to them. And he was masterful in the way he responded to the Sadducees. And we're never gonna be tired in heaven. We're never gonna be bored. We're never gonna be discouraged. We'll live in perfect joy. And if you don't know him, I hope that hearing about heaven will make you want to know him and want to be with him for all eternity. And so we can sing when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. 
Um, so the real issue of all of this is will you be in heaven? That's what we need to talk about. And it will be wonderful beyond words. And if you're not sure you'll be there, you can be sure. Not based on what I say, but based on what the word of God says. I just want to end with this quote from Randy Alcorn and his book, Heaven. He says, the best of life on earth is a glimpse of heaven. The worst life is a glimpse of hell. For Christians, this present life is the closest they will ever come to hell. And for unbelievers, this life is the closest they will ever come to heaven. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, if there's someone here this morning that doesn't know for sure that they'll be in heaven, I believe they're here because you're drawing them to yourself and may they respond to you right now in faith. Because without faith, it is impossible to please you. And will you help all of us, Father, to live this week and all of our lives like we're dying because we are. And at the same time, will you help us to live like we're going to live forever because we will. And so, Father, as we take the gospel to those around us, help us to to remember that you've left us here for a reason. And that part of that reason is to, to spread your kingdom. We love you. In Jesus' strong name we pray. Amen. I I think at the 10,000 year mark, we should all plan on meeting together around the throne with all those tribes that we have through our missionaries so we can all praise God together. So remember that 10,000 years here around the throne. Now may the God of peace equip you with all you need for doing his will. May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him. All glory to him forever and ever. Amen.